Welcome to The Jarek Show, featuring your hosts, Javad Malik and Eric Crone. Timely topics, poorly presented. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages and all genders. Welcome to The Jarek Show and Happy New Year. We'd like to say we've turned round a corner. Maybe we have. But if you've kept your receipts, maybe you can ask for a refund on 2021 already because it's panning out to be quite the dumpster fire that 2020 was. But anyway, we're not here to depress you. We're here to give you timely topics in a poorly presented manner. Uh, But this week we have a very special guest with us to kick things off. Uh, Very, very honored to welcome to the show uh rowena fielding hello rowena how are you hello i'm not too bad thank you i'm very very honored to be uh, your first guest of 2021 i uh, yeah i'm i'm a hard act to follow <laughs> you are it's all downhill from here and, well, it's, it's 2021 isn't it you know I things know. can only get worse <laughs> speaking yeah, of downhill, eric yeah i saw a meme recently it said uh uh 2021 is basically 2020 went home put on a wig and came back and so it's starting off that way, you know, it, it's, it's been crazy already. It, it has, and we're going to cover some of those topics as we go along in here. Um, and, and just to give you an idea, um, Javad still hasn't straightened his whiteboard in 2021. So I, I have a feeling that that is impacting a whole lot of things. Not that you can see it, Javad, don't get all self-conscious about it. it but having said that, <laughs> let's that, move yeah. in. And, and I would correct it, but I know now that it irritates the OCT that Eric has. So no, I'm deliberately never going to straighten it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It makes the German in me twitch a little bit, but that's yeah. okay. That's all right. So, Javad, what, what do we have going on today? Um, and so then... Before we get into it, yeah. let, let's uh, let's give the, uh, our viewers a bit of context as to who Ruene is, who's your daddy, and what does he do? Uh, <laughs> I, I am not sharing personal information about my father on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> and since we live in a post-patriarchal society, or are trying to, I fail to see what my father even has to do with the topic. <laughs> <laughs> but I can tell you about what I do. <laughs> Go for it. Yeah, I'm Rowena Fielding. I am a professional data protection nerd uh, and personal data protection geek. Um, I do it for fun and profits, probably more fun than profits, but I'm working on that. Um, and I am a, um, yeah, I'm, I'm outspoken, I think somebody described me as. Um, I have a very little filter, so um, apologies in advance for anybody I upset. Um, but yeah, I, I do things, uh, all things privacy, data protection, the intersection of human rights and technology, which is really, really important stuff these days. Um, and there's a lot more interesting than it sounds. So when people ask me at social events what I do for a living, I say to them, I am a warrior on the front line of the fight to defend fundamental human rights and freedoms. And then they go, what? And I go, I work in data protection. <laughs> well, thank you for your service. Uh, I'll say that. Uh, Eric loves it when I thank other people for that because uh, he's a disabled vet, apparently. And uh, we won't go into that. Anyway, the first story of the show. Eric brought this to our attention. Uh, he was quite disappointed that all under 16's accounts on TikTok will be made private by default. Uh, so, what's this all about, Eric? 
Yeah, you're really going to go like that, huh? Okay. No, I thought this was interesting because I knew we were talking about privacy or privacy if you're in certain parts of the world. Um, but, you know, privacy is 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 one of those terms that's thrown around in a lot of different ways. And unfortunately, I think people can get confused about privacy. Now, this is setting people's um, accounts to being private by default if they're between 13 and 15, because we know that you can't sign up for an account due to COPA or COPA. Uh, until you're 13 years old. So there are absolutely nobody under that age out there. Um, and they certainly don't, you know, fake their age when they sign up. But the idea here is that they make all of these accounts now automatically private. Um, and that's, you know, in the name of their privacy. Um, and quite frankly, I think it's an effort to make sure that they don't get pinned with even more of a, uh, a reputation of uh, being kind of a creepy place for, uh, for people to to, to chase down young people. Um, I don't know how else to say that without offending a lot of people. Um, but I mean, TikTok's already got a reputation for that. So it's interesting to see them do that. But again, uh, the reason I pointed this out was just because it's one of several ways that the word privacy is thrown around. Yeah. So privacy is, is used um, as a to mean the polar opposite of in public, which is, you know, it's a valid use, but it's certainly not the most common use or the universal use. So if they'd said closed accounts and open accounts, i.e. a closed account is one that, you know, you have to open the door to from the inside, an open account is one where anyone can just step through the door. That I think would um, help in, in clarifying, you know, what this whole private, public, private, commercial, private freedom thing, um, axis of opposites is um, was a big problem working in privacy and data protection is that you never really know what somebody's really talking about when they talk about privacy because it means different things to different people um, and I think the tech industry certainly doesn't help because the tech industry does use words deliberately to obfuscate um, where it's beneficial to them um, even if it's not beneficial to the end user so I think this is a really good measure I think it should have been um, designed in to the platform um, because it limits the exposure to creeps, weirdos and perverts that young people um, can have out of the gate. Um, but I think calling the accounts private is, I don't think it's terribly helpful. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I think that's, you know, like I said, I, I appreciate you you actually seeing why I was saying this, because I do think the terminology is used across the board. Now, our next story here. Uh, in my opinion, is much more about what a lot of us think about when it comes to actual privacy. And Javad, this one's yours, so I'm just going to let you run with this one. <laughs> everyone's favorite uh, platform, Facebook. Uh, well, everyone's grandparents' favorite platform, I think it is <laughs> these days. But um, they, they bought WhatsApp a couple of years ago for an eye-watering $16 billion. Um, and... Um, they 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 were like yeah we're, we're not we're going to leave it as it is we're not going to do anything uh everything's going to remain you know intact end-to-end -end encryption we're not going to infringe on it and everything but then when you look at facebook's business model and 99 percent of its overall revenue is from advertising it was only a matter of time before they would try to get their hooks sunk into whatsapp um 
Now, the latest update that they rolled out a few weeks ago, where they announced, well, they announced it, you've still got a few weeks before it actually comes into force, where they're saying, hey, here's a new terms and conditions. We want to share some data with Facebook and either accept it or leave and go to another messaging platform. Um, I, th I think there was a bit of a, a knee-jerk reaction in the media by a lot of people. They immediately came out and said, hey, this means that they're going to share all of your data with Facebook immediately for all intents and purposes. But um, I think when you look into it, that's not entirely the case. I think if you, I'm not a Facebook fan, I'm not a Zuckerberg fan at all in the slightest. Let me just start by saying that. I think if you're worried about how Facebook is using your WhatsApp data or any data, you should have left the platform a long time ago previously. There's a lot, I think in my opinion, there, there are a lot more better reasons to leave than just uh, with some of the sharing. But um, Without going into some, I mean, this, this is a Ars Technica article, but our own Rowena Fielding uh, actually wrote a, a fantastic blog post on it uh, about uh, where she actually translated. Why am I talking about Rowena in the third person as if she's not even there? You are right here, Rowena. You, 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 you wrote this uh, thing, and uh, maybe you could uh, give us the, the high level bullet points as to uh, what, what these policies are all about. Yeah, so what this is, what the um, new privacy policy is, is WhatsApp finally coming clean about the sharing that they've been doing for ages anyway. Um, there is no real operational change here. Um, it's just that uh, renewed uh, awareness of um, data trading, algorithmic profiling, micro-targeting, tracking, that sort of thing, has forced them to, uh, to, to hold their hands well to hold, you know, maybe one finger up and say, mm, yeah, we're doing some stuff. Um, and as you say, if you don't like it, leave. Now, I took one for the team and I went through WhatsApp's privacy notice with a fine tooth comb and a jaded and cynical eye. Um, and I also followed all the links to all the other uh, linked privacy policies for the other Facebook group companies that um, they that, that are referenced. Uh, and at the end of all of it, it was about seven hours work to do all that and write this in total. I am no more informed about what data is being sent where uh, for targeting, profiling and advertising than I was when I started. Um, when I started, I already knew quite a bit of it because I follow this sort of stuff anyway. Um, but um, they're very, very coy about the um, the uses of data, which are um, a metadata as well, because um, being that the content is encrypted end to end, sorry, the message content is encrypted end to end. Um, WhatsApp and therefore Facebook can't read the messages themselves, but there's a lot you can tell from metadata. Um, lot you can tell from metadata that's actually very very revealing so at the end of it I came to the conclusion that um, WhatsApp are siphoning an undisclosed amount of data to the rest of Facebook group which is quite a lot of companies who do a lot of different things um, that there is a shared purpose among that group to um, be able to recognize, profile, identify, target, track, issue judgments and predictions, essentially manipulate um, individual people based on the data that they gather in that way. Um, and that they're not being what I would say is sufficiently transparent about it to be meeting their legal obligations. 
And then if you look at Facebook's track record um, since it began, um, I think really anybody who trusts them to do the right thing or even believes them when they say they're doing the right thing, um, well, uh, if they'd like to buy a bridge, I know where to send them. <laughs> so, Rowena, just real quick, um, you know, Javad kind of talked about this in the beginning. You know, uh, it, it's been a lot of people have kind of went, ah, and screamed about this, right? In your opinion, how many people do you think understand that it's not a change from the end-to-end -end message contents, but instead just the metadata? Do you think they're they're misunderstanding this to think that now all of a sudden all of their messages are readable or, you know, in the general opinion? Um, I think... I think that uh, the majority of people understand that there is data that they wouldn't necessarily want being used in certain ways to uh, to affect them um, is being used that way and don't really care about whether or not it's message content or attachments or contact logs or anything else. It's just the fact that um, they are being harvested of data um, and not... Um, uh, and the implications of that for sort of wider society are, are pretty dismal. Um, and so I don't think they really care that it's message data or metadata. I, I don't think it's worth um, the professionals really worrying about that either, as long as people are scared, because they should be. <laughs> um, and also, I think the... Um, in the same way, the fact that this is just um, a newly, slightly more open admission of existing practices as opposed to a change to practice, um, I don't think it's important that uh, it's that anyway, because um, the end result is that people are taking more of an interest in what's happening to their data and what's happening to them and the people around them as a result of it. So. In my view, that's a win. Um, and I, I don't think that kind of nitpicking over the, the fine details is, um, I, I'm not sure it's particularly helpful here. Um, obviously, among security and pri privacy professionals, we need, to be, um, we need to be concise and accurate in what we're saying. But I, I don't think it's a problem that the general public doesn't necessarily understand the intricate details of the uh, advertising and attention-based economy um, because they're mind-bogglingly complicated. And that's, you know, to gatekeep that sort of knowledge seems um, against the, the whole idea of, of the whole privacy thing, which is human rights and freedoms, if you're in the EU. So, Javad, you had mentioned um, in, in your research when you were looking into this, um, how much you saw this align with their the Facebook push for um, marketing and selling through the Facebook book platform. Um, do you want to chat about that a little bit? Uh, yeah, that's right. So so that's the thing. I think uh, it, it touches upon what you were saying, Rowena, that this new update is just transparency in what they've already been doing. And I went through some of the uh, Facebook um, earnings calls from uh, the last quarter and they, they've got the transcripts there and everything. And they've been, I mean, this is a direction they've been heading in for a long time. And uh, a big push that they, they have from a business point of view is to bring the Facebook family of products, that's Instagram, Facebook, Messenger, and WhatsApp into one interoperable platform. And uh, businesses is a big part of that. So they want people to be able to sell on Facebook and buy through WhatsApp and be, be it seamless and, uh, it's the business transaction side, which is they're really opening up because they want 
for your protection. They want to um, be able to see what's going on there and be able to help you resolve issues and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, in, one of their, in one of their FAQs um, on one of those things, they actually said something about uh, the changes aren't major. The big difference is we're going to be sharing information with people when you message a business on WhatsApp, which frankly, I had no idea there's a business on WhatsApp anywhere, right? Um, yeah. But it tells you, it shows you how they're trying to align that with their sales strategies. And if you look at what's going on with Facebook Marketplace, um, it's exploded from just your local areas now to where they really, really push shipping on you if you're selling things. So they're trying to expand out into a larger, you know, maybe even like an eBay-ish or, or competing with something like that marketplace, um, Etsy or whatever. Um, they're, they're really driving into that that kind of sales side of things as well as the, the advertising. Yeah, it's clever because if people don't have, if, if, um, if they provide a platform that's cheap and uh, easy to use, in a context where a lot of people are anyway, what will happen is that organizations will um, consolidate onto the Facebook platform, you know, charities as well and schools and local organizations, stuff like that. Um, and it, it's a lock-in. It makes them a captive audience. Um, and, you know, the, since the Facebook group's business model is essentially pimping out its users to advertisers and people who want to be able to buy influence over other people. And that's ideal. It makes solid business sense, um, certainly from a, um, an antitrust and an ethics and a sociological point of view. It's an absolute disaster. Well, there are already, I believe there's already something in the U.S. courts um, trying to break up Facebook and Instagram, if I'm not mistaken, uh, due to antitrust sorts of things. So it's interesting to see how they're going to navigate these things. And and as, a, as an American consumer, at least, I see a couple of things here um, where we have some uh, monopolies there that, quite frankly, it, it kind of shakes, uh, shakes everything, in, in my opinion, like, Amazon, you know, Amazon is where people just go to buy stuff anymore, right? So it's really impacted brick and mortar. It's really impacted things like that. We got the Facebook platform with Instagram and WhatsApp and with all these kinds of things together. And they dominate a lot of the this social media with respect to this sort of things. You know, I use Facebook mostly to keep up with family and stuff that are in different parts of the country. Um, and there's a lot of people that do that. So there's a huge number of people on that platform. And, you know, there was a time, though, it was interesting to me that, you know, when we were, do, do you all remember um, uh, uh, MySpace, right? Remember that? Literary pages and, and music when you went there, right, right. And I'll tell you, at the time, I was like, man, MySpace is huge. It's, it can never go away. But they were, you know, they were taken over by Facebook very, very quickly by this guy, Mark, who wrote something that I believe was initially only for college kids. And then they opened it up to everything else. And it just destroyed my space. And now look at this juggernaut that we have in, in place. It's an interesting point you make about the origin of Facebook. Originally, it was uh, written by Mark Zuckerberg for the purpose of rating the physical attractiveness of his fellow, fellow students behind their back, which is about as revoltingly misogynistic as you can get. Um, that pretty much set the tone for the rest of Facebook's operations. <laughs> like ethics? Nah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's all about harnessing the, the worst of human nature to make a profit for somebody else. Um, and that, you know, the, 
obviously it's given a lot of people um, a lot of access to the internet. I mean, there are places in the world where Facebook is the internet as far as people are concerned. You know, they can only access uh, Facebook, no other online environment, and everything they do has to be through Facebook, which makes Facebook an extremely powerful mediator of social interactions. So, as you probably know, you know, uh, trans people have serious problems with f- Facebook's real names policy, as do First Nations peoples, because the people who designed um, the, the the tools and the processes just, you know, they didn't bother thinking about those other people. They didn't think they have to. And so when um, a, one platform or one type of platform starts to take up all the real digital real estate on the planet, You've got some serious problems, as have been discussed this week with Trump getting booted off Twitter. Um, You've got some serious problems with um, being able to meddle at large scale in societies. Um, And with regard to Trump being uh, kicked off Twitter, um, it was interesting to see um, all of the um, trans activists, uh, people of colour, BLM uh, activists, sex workers say, this has been happening to us for years. How come you only care now that a rich white guy has had it done to him? And that's an interesting point because part of the reason people didn't care was that they didn't see it. Yeah. Um, so Facebook essentially is mediating people's very view of the world. Um, and, and that's a pretty dangerous thing. It is. Think, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. It's like even like when you look at things like the Rohingya massacre, that, that happened uh, recently. It's that di- directly attributed to Facebook and, and and exactly that kind of mediation that they did. So it's uh, it's quite dangerous. Um, I thought it was interesting, like Parler, a lot of people jumped off Facebook and went to Parler, right? And and look what happened to Parler, <laughs> uh, which is, is another story we're going to talk about here in a minute. Yeah. But, um, you know, as much as I'm not a big fan of Parler or anything like that, it is kind of obvious what happens to competitors when people do jump into that um, and and how hard it is. Why, why doesn't the same sort of thing happen to Facebook when it's kind of been going on there for a long time, too? And so there's there's some interesting um, things that 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 are there to think about and break down on that. We've moved to a model of digital feudalism. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, um, and that's rolling back a lot of the progress towards you know, democracy, intersectionality, human rights, um, by not as a necessarily an intended inco- uh, outcome for for anybody. Nobody sat down and went, "I'm going to do this." Although it's possible Zuckerberg has actually done that, or Bezos or any of the others. Um, but it's it's just a, an effect of um, human nature being played out in groups and interactions far larger than our evolutionary biology equipped us to cope with. Yeah, about a year and a half, just before we move on to the next topic, about a year and a half ago, Kashmir Hill, she's a journalist, she wrote for Gizmondo, she, she wrote this piece about, hold on, let me just, uh, I cut the big five tech giants out from my life, it was hell. So, so this is actually a really good series to read. She does a weekly one where she cuts out each of the big five one week at a time. So, uh, so it was it was Microsoft, Amazon, Google, uh, Facebook, and Apple. So she had a custom sinkhole made, and so anything that so week one it was say like no Microsoft at all. So she couldn't use any Microsoft online services, any product, no nothing. 
and that was hard. Then the next week, I think Amazon was one of the hardest because nearly everything has is running on AWS in the background. Uh, yeah, at work, she couldn't use Dropbox to transfer files on certain weeks. Uh, so she'd done this one week at a time, and then one week she completely cut off everything. And she was basically, she said it was like, it was literally the internet was unusable. She couldn't do anything. It's it's a really good series. I, I, I recommend uh, uh, pe people uh, read this up and uh, reflect on their own usage as well and what that means. And reflect on things like um, the, the reasons for privacy and digital rights activism as well. I mean, this goes back to the, the conversation about what is privacy um, from, uh, or rather in, in Europe, what data protection is, is the balancing of the rights and freedoms of the individual against the interests of larger groups, whether they're corporations, governments, charities, you know, the rest of the nation. Um, and um, this is a beef that I have with a lot of the conversations about privacy in the security world, is they're not talking about privacy, they're talking about security, specific technical controls for confidentiality. Um, and totally missing the point of the whole rights and freedoms bit, which is what those technical controls are supposed to serve. Um, and the, the, the conversation about privacy is really tied up with the conversation about the degree of control technology platforms are allowed to have over our lives, our feelings, what we see, what we believe, what we do, why we do it. Uh, and I think that's that's why... Um, the conversation is really important right now. And also why InfoSec people should shh when it comes to privacy, <laughs> unless they're being asked about security. Because <laughs> they think the same thing. I, I know this this is like sort of like a, a, a something that you, you've been speaking at for a long time. And uh, I've learned a lot about you from you to be quiet when it comes to these matters. But because in a lot of people's minds, they're quite intertwined. And you're right, they, they mistake the confidentiality for the privacy and what have you. Other than being quiet, what are some of the key things or key thing you, you, you wish that more security people would understand about privacy that they don't today? To listen to other people, especially people who are not like them, um, especially people who are not in security. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, certainly um, psychologists, sociologists, statisticians, statisticians uh, historians, because the work uh, around, you know, what is privacy and why do we need it has been done. It's been done over and over and over all through the um, the the history of time. It's just that it wasn't being done by white guys. So nobody listened. Um, and I think um, that. There is um, a lot of the security industry that comes from comparatively highly privileged demographics, shall we say. If we're you know, talking intersectionality here, um, there are a lot of people who, while they may have had their individual struggles in life, um, they don't have a lot of systemic bias against them um, in their position in society. And I think that you know, the, the, if I was going to recommend one thing to security people who want to get into the conversation about privacy and don't want to stick their foot in it, 
is to go and read about uh, things like intersectionality, um, social, major social systemic injustice, um, the hist how history is written through a particular lens, um, and how if you change that lens history changes and I've had conversations with infosec bros who are like oh well, you know women aren't really very good at technology and you say well what makes you think that and they go well if you look at the the past um all the the innovations have been made by guys and you're like uh actually I think you'll find that the women did the work and the guys hijacked the credit um, and half the time the women weren't even allowed into the workplace or the universities at all so yeah your reading of history I think infosec people need to broaden their horizons and stop thinking about infosec for a little bit and think about people instead and I know that's a message that uh, Infosec has been um, trumpeting over the last few years in relation to how people feel and think and act about security. I think that needs to be taken wider um, and go into how people think and feel and react about other people uh, and, and why security is even a thing. Like, what are we protecting here and why are we protecting it? Are we protecting corporate assets or are we protecting the company we work for because it's what gives us our income um are we protecting our nation um why but you know things like that and and to understand that privacy isn't about protecting data privacy is about protecting the rights and freedoms of real living human beings there's a, a massive difference there so i think that's the one takeaway i would give to infosec people here think rights and freedoms of individuals fantastic yeah kind of i think kind of goes back to what we talked about before is the word privacy being used for different things and and you know you're right infosec people we look at privacy in the uh, aspect of controls security controls to protect the data but not really the other side of that yet we're still using the same word for different things so that's that's a very interesting uh viewpoint and definitely appreciate that Cool. So moving on to the next story, the last story of, of the of the day, before we just uh, <laughs> uh, take take things in a different direction after that. Um, Eric, some of your friends were, I say friends. Don't even go there. <laughs> Don't even go there, man. <laughs> you know better. Well, you're American. You live in America. So surely you must, you're, 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 you know, I'm probably six degrees of separation away from them. You're probably three degrees of separation away from them. <laughs> Yeah, we had a very interesting week here in America, um, to say the least. <laughs> um, I mean, what else do you say? Uh, we saw some just crazy stuff happen last week, and I, I thought it was just mind-boggling, to be honest with you. Um, and, and the stuff that we saw happen, um, it, I, I saw a couple of things that kind of made me shake my head. Uh, and I know this is a little bit off what we're doing here, but I'm, I'm going to say this anyways. I was actually watching the live feed of it was just basically a news camera there that was running a live feed on probably Facebook. Um, and you got the background, you like, you know, the ladies asking the, 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 uh, the reporters looking for a phone charger and, you know, you're hearing all the background noise, but then they have a guy come up and he's apparently got the video of the gal that got shot inside and he's talking to, to her and, and they're talking about how she's like recording his, his phone with hers to try to, to get the info out there anyways. So, they, they start talking and, and she gives out her cell phone number live on the air. 
and he gives up his name, where he's from, and his cell phone number, all talking right there next to the camera. Not on camera, not on them necessarily, but in the background, you can clearly hear them saying this stuff. And I'm, you know, I, I'm not even getting into judging what he did or or anything like that, but I'm just going wow, we don't think about stuff like that. And, and here, this guy who was just involved in this pretty significant thing was inside the Capitol next to the gal that got shot because he had blood on his hand and stuff, is giving out his cell phone number, not realizing that the camera is running and a live feed to like everyone. I think it was like an ABC feed or something like that. It, it was a crazy, crazy time, right? And what gets me is we we had these people, they got inside. Now the pictures have been taken of all these folks. And what I thought was interesting about this is the crowdsourcing that's happened around identifying them, you know, and, and you had the one moron that wore his work badge. He was quickly fired because, <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, really, come on. Uh, but the crowdsourcing that's gone into identifying this, and I believe they have 170 people of interest or 170 cases, and they've done like 70 arrests, a lot of it through the crowdsourcing piece. So privacy, how how does it exist, right? I, I talk to people and they're like, there is no privacy anymore. So they're kind of given up on some things. And this is kind of an example of how quickly this can be sourced out and, and you can be found out regardless. What, what do you think about that? Privacy is not a binary, and that's one of the biggest mistakes people make when talking about privacy. It's not a case of, um, you know, if if your boundaries are infringed in any way, your entire rights and freedoms have evaporated. K, thanks, bye. Um, it's it's a question of degrees and contexts. And privacy law uh, in Europe is not absolute either. There are qualified rights where if um, it's necessary to protect other people, um, then your rights can be uh, reduced. So privacy uh, as a concept isn't dead. Its implementation is certainly struggling a lot because um, you've got the fundamental fact that individuals' rights and freedoms are not compatible with capitalism. <laughs> You know, it's just the way it is. Sorry. Um, which is why we don't have free market capitalism. We have regulated capitalism. And that's a whole other discussion for another time. But um, privacy isn't dead, but people aren't taking it terribly seriously until the lack of it affects them personally. Um, and it's really hard to perceive the impact of privacy intrusions in the digital age because those impacts are widely distributed and diffuse and they, they don't really become noticeable until um, you know, lots of people become affected on the macro level. Um, so harking back to the, the bombings at the Boston Marathon, crowdsourcing uh, of the uh, identification of the culprits happened unofficially there it was happening on Reddit before the FBI got involved. Um, and also the, the identifications were not very accurate because cross-racial identification is a thing. It doesn't make the people doing it bad people. It's a function of evolutionary biology. We're wired to be able to recognize people like us more than we can recognize people who look different from us. That's just the way humans work. Um, so at that time, the um, the crowdsourcing was kind of unofficial. And I think it's possible that the FBI kind of noticed that that produced 
some useful results um, and decided to to kind of make it official this time round um, and and you know say to people you know we want you to go out and snitch on your neighbors um, and that's really interesting because when the Stasi did that it was bad uh, but when the FBI do it uh, against people who have blatantly broken the law you know that's good as long as you're on the other side it just goes to show that um the uses of technology um, whether or not those uses are good or bad depends on who's using them against whom um, and that is something that you will never get the entire human species to agree on which um makes it all very difficult because you can say look it's really bad to set you know friends and neighbors and families and community uh communities against each other and and ask them to grass each other up but then if if you believe that the um the things that those people have done are bad and do deserve to be you know hunted down and punished then all of a sudden that really scary creepy surveillance uh, approach looks justified it's it's not something for which there are any easy uh solutions that will make everybody happy happy ever after and no longer do snitches get stitches at that point, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It becomes acceptable. It's worthy cause is the right thing to do, apparently. <laughs> Javad, what do you think? No, I think that's fascinating. I, I, I'm just sitting there taking notes, and I'm like, I have no idea about a lot of these things. So that's why we invite guests on this show who are far smarter than us, which isn't too hard to do, given that I, I talk with Eric most of the time. Um, <laughs> I've actually had the thesaurus open on the side. It's not a thing. What is Rowena talking about? What is, what is this <laughs> I get that a lot. <laughs> it's yeah. fine. But, but this is fascinating. So, I mean, like, moving a bit on from, from the stories, obviously, you have a deep understanding of, of privacy and human rights and everything. So, to anyone that might be listening who might be considering, hey, that's a good career that I might want to pursue, or it's a specialism I, I, I want to delve into. Uh, how did you kind of like fall into this field and what, how would you recommend other people want to know a bit more about it? Uh, uh, you, you're laughing as if there's a story behind that. So I, I am definitely going with that question. How did you fall into this field? How, what would you recommend people who are interested in learning more about it uh, do? The story was I was an infosec and then I evolved into a higher life form <laughs> of privacy. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ouch. <laughs> joking aside, that's actually kind of what it was. I mean, I just got really bored with all the navel gazing and the endless arguments about teeny tiny finicky details um, and you know, the ego stuff as well. And of course, the blatant sexism and um, uh, prejudice against minority groups, but which you find everywhere, but there is a lot of in InfoSec. Um, and I just fell into data protection um, by doing the work I was doing at the time. And I just got more and more interested. And for me, data protection, privacy, because it's about human rights and human freedoms and, you know, trying to get along with each other on this ball of rock hurtling through space. It was something that I could believe in and be passionate about, passionate about um, more than the the mundanities of the security work I was doing, which was, you know, stuff like group group policy security settings. I mean, how boring is that? 
so yeah, I, I moved away from security. I had to do a lot of reprogramming of my thought processes to go through that journey away from um, secure all the things to, you know, what is it in humanitarian terms we're trying to achieve here? Um, so I think if anyone's looking to get into uh, privacy, if if they've got the stones for it, surveillance capitalism by um, I can't remember how to pronounce her name, uh, Shoshana Zubel. Um, yeah. Anyway, it's it's a heavy read, but it's a really worthwhile one because it's terrifying. Um, also, um, algorithms of oppression by Sophia Noble and uh, weapons of math destruction by Kathy O'Neill. Um, they talk about the intersection of technology and human rights and human societies and how technology is being used in ways that um, have a detrimental effect on large numbers of people. But for each of those people, each particular effect is is kind of very small and, and difficult to notice. Um, and that's how it is with digital. You know, you don't know that you haven't seen uh, job adverts for high flying roles because you've been profiled as a woman of color. It just happens. You don't know. It, it does happen. Um, you don't know that um, about all the things that you're not being shown by algorithmic curation. Um, and you don't realize that the reason why social media makes you so angry is because uh, the, the curation algorithms are optimized for engagement. And what keeps people clicking is anger. <laughs> so um, anyone wanting to get into uh, privacy from security, I think, again, needs to, to take the take a more roundabout view than simply expanding um, the the question of what is the control set? Um, because there are big questions about who gets to be in control, what kind of control should they have and over whom that you have to address in privacy that, that don't get looked at so much in security. So definitely broaden the horizons, check your privilege, read, discuss, keep an open mind, learn, and you, you kind of have to care about people as well. If you just don't care about people, then privacy is not the career for you. Excellent, excellent. Security. I couldn't imagine IT folks not caring about people. <laughs> We're just all known for how, you know, extroverted we generally are. Passionate. Empathetic. Uh, you know, the extra mile to help anyone. <laughs> We, we have a reputation. We kind of earned it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a thing about the demographics there. If you look at the historical demographics of computing, once it became lucrative, uh, it got taken away from women. And then you look at, you know, how the industry was shaped. It's all it's all very interesting stuff. Sorry, I interrupted. That's that's what we got you here for. Uh, <laughs> So, so just what, what, another thing that I've got on my mind, and we, we touched on it before we hit record, and then uh, we'll see if Eric's got any any questions for you, is um, the differences between how privacy is viewed between, we, we spoke about it between the US and the UK, or how Europe perceives it, and maybe other parts of the world. Um, could you just elaborate a bit on how, how you tackle that from a different yeah, I mean, there is a big cultural difference in how privacy is viewed and talked about and approach um, 
between um, the US and the EU. Um, the, the US was founded on very individualistic kind of um, you know, Lone Ranger type traditions where the, the self is paramount and the individual's rights and freedoms are the most important thing. Um, whereas there's much more collectivism across the pond. It's um, more of a con privacy is not so much about um, myself, the castle, as it is about where do I, the individual, fit into this group of other individuals and other groups of individuals. So, um, and also that in uh, in the um, and obviously I'm speaking in enormous generalizations here, like hashtag not all, etc. Um, but in a um, the US, there's um, it's very much the uh, about the individual. Um, integrity and empowerment um, and while that exists in the European sphere as well um, it's less about government interference than it is in the states although you know that is a consideration um, and, and more about you know how can kind of more about how can we all get on with each other um, rather than um, sort of elevating the the individual um, above the group um, and, and that's, you know, I'm not saying either is wrong or right. It's just differences in perspective. And then you have, there are places in Asia where the family unit gets privacy, but within the family unit, there is no, there are no boundaries, essentially. So that's a different um, approach to privacy again. Uh, and again, you know, I'm not saying these are wrong or right. They're just different ways that societies have uh, evolved an approach to privacy, but it, it makes it quite difficult when you're trying to do, you know, privacy on a global scale, which position do you start from? Um, now, obviously, uh, being a former European citizen, <laughs> I'm very, yeah, very much on, uh, because, you know, I, I've been, um, I, I've studied and worked in that, uh, that arena. That's the one that makes the most sense to me. Um, but I think because technology has a global reach, we're all finding it really hard to come up against these cultural differences and, and reconcile them. Um, because, you know, humans being humans, it's, it's very much a case of you're wrong, I'm right, I must conquer you, <laughs> which isn't terribly helpful. So there is a big cultural divide and you see it in um, also in sort of uh, how privacy rights work. So in the US, it's pretty much, I can get my hands on any information about any other person unless there's a damn good reason why I shouldn't, because what are they hiding? Um, and in Europe, it's more, mind your own business unless you've got a damn good reason for finding out information about this person. Um, and, and that, you know, that just reflects the evolution of the society, the events that happen to um, Bringing that back to technology, the, um, the hegemony, the, the, the uh, stranglehold that American industry, technological industry has on the world means that American cultural norms are being exported and imposed in other areas, which is leading to frictions. Um, I mean, there's, you know, I, I keep seeing that the meme going around that, um, and it's like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram stuff, you know, you can show violence. Violence is fine, but tits, no way. Tits are evil. 
tits will poison children's minds. You can show cartoons of people chopping each other's heads off, blood and gore, no problem. Just, you know, keep the tits under wraps, girls. And and to somebody who hasn't grown up in American culture, that just seemed bonkers. Like, that is so wrong. Like, nobody ever killed anybody with a breast, you know? It's <laughs> kind killed- of an absolute. I'm not saying it couldn't happen, you know, or that it's never happened. That is kind of an absolute. I, I'm just going to throw that out there, okay? Uh. Rule 34. <laughs> That's an, that one as a personal challenge now. <laughs> so you, you make some really good points there. Uh, most of them I missed because I heard USA, um, you know, personal uh, freedom and from there the chanting USA, USA. And then I heard conquer and, uh, you know, pushing our, our technological stuff on you. That's all I heard out of all that. Um, eventually, I'm going to go back and re-listen to this, though. Um, you know, you're right, though. We we do have different mindsets when it comes to, uh, to how that all goes. And, and it is an interesting thing culturally how we're raised. And, and I agree with you 100%. Americans are very much, we, we are very much us, um, us focused and us centered. And I'm not, I'm not even going to say that that's wrong um, because that's, that's a whole nother discussion right there. Um, but it is how we're raised and how we see things. And I notice, like um, American families, we tend not to be as, um, as much of a nuclear family around the family as perhaps other, even, even American families, but from different cultures, Mm. Hispanic cultures and things like that. I know I'm nowhere near the same, um, family person, like with my extended family and stuff. I don't stay in touch with them. Like a lot of my other friends, um, from different cultures do, uh, especially like, like I said, the Hispanic cultures, I've known a lot of people like that and their family, they're, they're always doing stuff together. Um, but but there's definitely differences there. It's not just because America, whatever. But there are definitely some some things going on here that are that are very different, and that is going to impact where your values are and what you feel like you need to protect from that. And I like what you said about Asia, where within the family there are no secrets, you know. But outside of that, um, it's a very private thing. And I, I think that's important for us as humans as we grow across these different cultures and these different countries to understand when we deal with these other countries as well. Yeah, I think everyone's differing approach to privacy is fundamentally trying to resolve the eternal tensions between me, you, us, and them. And that's what it boils down to. But the thing is, you can't resolve those tensions. That's never going to go away. The individual's always going to be at some point in conflict with the group. My interests are always going to diverge at some point from yours. Um, and so we get into the realms of ethics, which is ugh, a whole rabbit hole all, all on its own. Um, so I, I think uh, anyone claiming to have solved this issue um, should be treated with ridicule because it's, it's not going away. Cool. Very good. Uh, Speaking of privacy, someone just walked behind you. Don't know if you know that. (laughs) (laughs) I got to tell you, I mean, there there is a lot to unpack here. There's a lot of good information here. Um, And I'm going to be doing a lot of thinking about this, quite frankly. Um, You know, and I think that's important that we take the time to do that with this. And so I personally just want to thank you for your time and being on the show because this was uh, this is very enlightening and gives us a lot to think about. 
Awesome. Well, I'm super, um, super grateful that you invited me and also that you let me just ramble on doing my like brain dump thing. Um, I love doing that. <laughs> it's been great to talk with you guys. No, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, th th I think for, for me, this this ticks like, you know, two boxes. We get you on the show and I get to catch up with you again, Rona, which we haven't done ever since lockdown. So thank you so much for, for coming. Really appreciate it. And as we all know, ticking boxes is really what it's all about. I've made a career out of it. <laughs> Eric, what, what have you got to say? You know, I think that uh, we really do need... Thank you so much for that, Eric. And thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. We've had a great time. This was our first show back. Uh, I've learned a lot. I hope you have as well. Eric probably stewing on the information he's just gathered. Uh, Rowena, thank you again. Until next week, stay secure, my friends.